Thank you for listening. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit the Hay Player at hayfestival.org. Hello, and welcome to Hay Festival for this event with Adrian Weller. Adrian is a senior research fellow at the University of Cambridge, who this event is in association with. He's also program director for AI at the Alan Turing Institute, the National Institution for Data Science and AI. Please give him a warm welcome on stage. Thanks very much, Caitlin. And thanks very much to all of you for taking time today to be, to be here. AI presents great hope for society with tremendous opportunities for all of us to prosper and live better, healthier lives. But there are also important concerns, and we need to talk about them together. So I'm delighted to be here. Many thanks to the organizers. And I hope that you'll consider engaging on these important issues, which are really important for all of our futures. I'll argue that as AI systems are deployed across society, we must take measures to be sure that we can trust them. Now, when we trust something, we make ourselves vulnerable. We need to be sure that the trust won't be abused to take advantage of us. So following Baroness Honora O'Neill, I suggest that what we need are reliable measures of justified trustworthiness. I'm going to talk about AI systems, but we should remember that AI tools are never ultimately responsible themselves for anything. There's always a person behind them who's deploying the system, and that person should be held accountable if something goes wrong. That's a very important point. But I'm going to focus on the AI systems themselves. And I'm going to argue that for those, there are some key measures of trustworthiness which we should require in order for trustworthiness, well-founded well trust to emerge. I'm going to tell you about some of the things that AI can do, some of the things it can't do, and also what I suggest we should require that it should do to enable proper trust in the systems we develop. First, let me tell you about some things it can do. It's an, it's an exciting time for AI. Capabilities have improved enormously over the last few years, leading to applications in use all around us in our everyday lives. I'm sure these are probably familiar devices to many of you, an Alexa from Amazon or Siri, which is on many of our phones. And these systems may appear to have human-like intelligence. They seem to be chatting to us in quite a smart way. They can even sometimes appear to be a bit witty. But really, they operate in quite different ways, and they, they can be performed in much more brittle fashion, which I'll discuss soon. And while indeed their performance is remarkable, it's also remarkable that we consumers are buying these products and putting them in our homes enabling them to listen to what we say throughout the day. This, of course, raises important questions about privacy. And privacy is an important topic. In general, there are great opportunities to learn from user data. Healthcare would be a great example. 
There's great hope that with more data, if we all share our data, that we may find new ways to diagnose diseases at scale and perhaps even find new ways to cure diseases. But we must make sure that users feel comfortable that their private data is safe and secure. There's exciting ongoing work in technical areas such as differential privacy and cryptographically secure multi-party computation to enable appropriate data sharing while giving users peace of mind in the privacy and security of their information. Recommender systems learn about us and then can sometimes make helpful recommendations for books, grocery products, or movies, or news stories. And we need to be a bit careful because increasingly, we see the world around us sometimes filtered through a digital lens which is controlled by companies. Companies which are motivated to show us things we'll click on or keep watching. So they appeal to our short-term desires rather than our long-term best interests or those of society. I'll call this concern one of influence as algorithms target us and nudge us in different directions. In computer vision, with progress over the last few years, we're now at the point where algorithmic systems under certain ideal conditions can recognize objects and faces as well as a human, or sometimes even better than a human. And they can also add captions to images. Here are some examples. I'm not sure if you can see these, and I guess the point is not working. But if you look first at the top left image, lovely picture, and you can see a caption that says, little girl is eating piece of cake. That was automatically added by an, an algorithm. Pretty impressive. Go two across to the right, and the caption says, woman is holding bunch of bananas. All good so far. But if you look on the bottom row, you'll see that things start to go increasingly wrong. Let's start at the bottom left. Lovely picture, there's a baby holding a toothbrush, but the caption says, a young boy is holding a baseball bat. <laughs> now, does anyone have an idea why it says a baseball bat? It's scared. It's, sorry? Scared? Scale. <laughs> Scale of what? Very good. It could, it could be that. It could be something to do with that. The suggestion is that, that comparing the toothbrush with, with, the, with the baby, maybe the scale looks a bit like a baseball bat. It's a very interesting idea. It could be something like that. I'm going to suggest that perhaps what's going on here is that, well, first you have to remember how these kinds of algorithms are trained. They're shown hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of labeled examples. And from the data that it's seen, it then tries to learn from that and when you show it new data, it tries to find patterns that are similar to what it's seen before. And I would guess that it happens to have been trained on a data set where maybe there are many baseball bats, but perhaps not many toothbrushes. But it could be something like you suggest. It's a, it's a very interesting idea. Go across to the bottom right, and this image is perhaps particularly worrying. There's a horrific scene. This is a true situation where a, uh, an airplane was almost crashing into, into a, a main road. But the algorithm obviously hasn't seen anything like that. It just gives this bland description of an airplane is parked on the tarmac at an airport. <laughs> so presumably those are the sorts of images which it's seen before. 
So what, what we see here is that these algorithms have no notion of common sense understanding. They're trained on data and they look for statistical patterns. And this means that they can fail in worrying ways. I'm going to talk about those ways they can fail quite soon. But first, let me show you some more cool things that these algorithms can do. On the previous slide, we saw algorithms take an image and return a short caption. Here, this is, this is a, a very recent algorithm, just from a couple of months ago, where the algorithm does something a little bit different. It takes a rough sketch, as shown on the left, so that someone has just drawn this very bland uh, kind of sketch picture on the left. And the algorithm turns it into this beautiful photorealistic image on the right. And this is an example of what's called a, um, a generative model. It uses something called a generative adversarial network to train it, a GAN. Hence this funny name, GoGAN, which they've, which they've coined for it. So this is the GoGAN algorithm. I'm going to show you an example soon. But just, just see how, how cool this is. So someone's just drawn these patches of color on the left. And you can see they've labeled them with these colors corresponding to things on the ground. So at the front, they've got plants. And then they've got this purple thing, meaning a river. And then they've labeled um, a hill. And they've labeled cloud and sky. And it's drawn this beautiful image on the right. I'm going to show you a video. And you'll see the person is going to click on rock. He's going to change that mountain to rock. And it'll change instantaneously on the right into a, a photorealistic rock image. And then perhaps even more impressively, you'll see the user is going to select water and just draw a line of water down the middle. And it'll become magically a, a, a realistic waterfall on the right. So let's watch this. Click on rock, and then we can replace the mountain. Let's try a waterfall just by pulling water down from the top there. Okay. Drawing water down the left Wouldn't side. It be great and look if on the right. Everybody could be an artist if we could take our ideas and turn them into compelling images. This technology allows us to create a smart paintbrush so that if you wanted to create a new picture, you can just draw the shapes of the objects that you want, and the neural network can then fill in all the details. If we add a water feature, the network is able to add reflections. Not because we told it that, but because it learned it. So I don't know if that made sense to you at the end. They added mountains on the top, and the algorithm knew to draw a reflection in the bottom. You can see the, actually that the reflection bottom is not perfect, but it's pretty impressive. The algorithm has learned to draw these really beautiful pictures. And for people like me who are not able to draw, this is really powerful. It enables a kind of creativity which we didn't have before. So this is a cool latest, latest tool. And many of the things which have made great progress over the last few years are powered by something called deep learning. Can you just get a sense? Please put your hand up if you've heard the phrase deep learning. Good, quite a lot of you. So deep learning is a particular type of machine learning. Machine learning is a type of artificial intelligence. Deep learning has been responsible for a lot of the great advances we've seen over the last few years. But what really is deep learning? Well, the basic method is based on an idea from the 80s. It's loosely based on a, on a, a kind of uh, approximate model for how our brain itself computes things. Our brain is made up of lots of neurons. We don't know actually exactly how each of them operates, but we crudely approximate how perhaps they operate a little bit. And by modeling those together, we form these deep learning systems. We have had some improvements in uh, the architectures of these systems and the ways that we can train them, but two big drivers have really improved performance. 
One of these is that we have much more data than we used to have. And the other is we have much more computational resource than we used to have. Those two things alone have really driven a lot of the improvement in these systems. And that's quite important to keep in mind, because as we go forward through time, we would expect those to continue to get better and better. We expect to get more data and more computational resource. So even if we don't improve these algorithms, they're likely to get better and better, at least at the narrow tasks of perception for which they're very good. But they're not perfect they do have some drawbacks. They can require an enormous amount of data to train them. They're not very good at representing uncertainty. That is, they can they not be very good at, at, at knowing how confident they should be when they make a prediction. And that can lead to them being easily fooled by something called adversarial examples, which we'll see on the next slide. Also, a common uh, a, a common concern that people have is these systems which are made up of hundreds of thousands or millions of, of neurons and millions or billions of weights can often seem uninterpretable black boxes, lacking in transparency. So that can make us nervous about deploying them in the real world. We'll talk a lot about that later on. But first, I'm going to come back to this idea of adversarial examples. What I'm showing here is, is perhaps the first example that was demonstrated just a few years ago. What's going on is that a system using a neural network has been trained on many labeled examples to be able to tell the difference between thousands of different object classes. Now, after it's been trained, it can perform very well. It's shown this image on the left, and happily, it thinks that it's seeing a panda. And perhaps even better, it has about 58% confidence that it's seeing a panda, that's really pretty good. Because remember, there are thousands of different things it might think that it was labeling. So it's 58% confidence of panda. The worrying thing is if you add just a tiny amount, 0.007, of this weird picture in the middle, which to us just looks like random colorful noise, what that gives you is the picture on the right. Remember, we've only changed the image on the left by a tiny amount of this strange image. So to us, the image on the right looks exactly the same as the image on the left. But now, when you show this to the classifier, it's 99% confident that it's seeing a gibbon. <laughs> That's not good. And there's nothing special about a gibbon. You could have picked any other object class. You could have picked a chair or a table. And we would, just, we would have used a different special image in the middle. But we, again, we'd only needed a tiny amount of it. Again, it would have been imperceptibly different to a human. And it would be incredibly confident it was seeing something very different. And you might think that this would be easy to solve, but actually, no. It turns out that this is a, a major problem, and it's, a, and it's an open problem that we're working on, and it can really have consequences in the real world. So let me show you. We're going to watch this video a few times. First, look at the, look at the right here. We're driving towards a stop sign. See that? So we're in a, we're in a car. Imagine we're training a, a, a system which is going to power an autonomous vehicle so that it can drive by itself. And at the bottom, we see what the automated system is seeing. So it, it recognizes the stop sign, and it knows it should come to a stop. So that's all good. But now look on the left, and you'll see that a mischievous person has stuck some black and white tape on the stop sign. You see that? They've stuck some black and white tape in particular places. So that's a little bit like what we saw in the last slide, where you added a particular change to confuse the algorithm. And that means, when you look on the bottom, that the algorithm sees, instead of the stop sign, it sees speed limit 45 until it gets very close, too close to stop in time. So this is a real problem. This is an example of a real-world adversarial example. 
And what we really need are systems which are reliable and robust to tricks like this. That's what we really need if we want to be sure that we can trust them, and that's something we need to work on. I should clarify that it's not just deep learning which we're using in machine learning and AI. There are many, many valuable approaches apart from deep learning, as, as are shown here. But overall, the machine learning research paradigm has been to train on data in the lab and then to assume that you're going to encounter the same sorts of data when you go out into the real world. But of course, that's often not the case. Think about autonomous vehicles which are going to need to face all sorts of conditions in the real world. They'll need to be sunny, and they'll need to be rainy, or it might be really miserable like this. This is a challenging environment even for an experienced human driver. The point is that we can't train an autonomous vehicle on every possible setting. The system must be able to generalize appropriately. That is, it needs some ability. Uh, otherwise, bad things can happen. <laughs> we need some ability to use common sense. So let me give you a few more fun examples of how we do not yet have common sense understanding in our AI systems. So here's an image. And uh, you can see a caption close up of a hillside next to a rocky hill, all good. But then look at these tags. Hillside is fine. But then it's got these weird labels, grazing, sheep, giraffe. Now, I know we're in Wales, and so sheep are always good. Uh, if you kind of squint a little bit and maybe turn your head sideways, you can maybe kind of see how you could see a giraffe in the rock on the left. But I think what's going on here, like we saw before, is that this is the kind of scene where uh, it was trained on examples where, with this kind of background, there often were sheep in the image. And I think that's what's making it imagine it sees sheep here. What we would do as humans if we saw the scene, we would do things like we'd move our head around if it was out in the real world, and we'd look for, to see how things were moving. But we can't do that yet with AI systems. Here are some sheep, some lambs, which are being held by children. But as you can see, because, because it hasn't seen many children picking up sheep, it's seen more dogs, it thinks it's a, a man holding a dog or a woman holding a dog. And here, if we do have sheep, if we paint the sheep orange, <laughs> the system thinks it's seeing flowers. So that's quite cute. Here's a different example uh, showing failure of common sense understanding. So this, uh, this was from an article by Douglas Hofstadter, who some of you may know. He wrote some wonderful books, including Gödel Escherbach. So he wrote this, uh, this article talking about Google Translate, obviously a state-of-the-art language translation system. We're going to look at the English paragraph at the bottom left. In their house, everything comes in pairs. So that gives us the setting. There's his car and her car, his towels, her towels, his library and hers. This is translated automatically into French. But the issue is that in French and many other languages, the adjectives for his and hers, they don't agree in gender with the possessor, but with the item possessed. So here we get dans le maison, tout vient en paire. Il y a sa voiture et sa voiture. It's the same word. The his and her have become the same word. Sa and sa. So it totally loses the context. It makes perfect sense as a local translation, but it's completely lost any sense of the context of what's going on. And that's something very important to keep in mind. Our, our AI systems are really poor on that at the moment. They're good at narrow, specific tasks, 
but they're, they're poor at context and at, at general common sense. But having said that, they still can perform very well in certain settings. So how can we help to understand how they really work and know when to trust them? So that leads us to the issue of transparency and interpretability. We'd often like to go under the hood to see what's going on underneath. But what really is transparency? Everyone likes to call for transparency, just like everyone likes to call for fairness. They're both ideas that people like the sound of. And they're both words which can mean different things to different people in different contexts. We need to keep that in mind. And now I have to warn you, because I'm going to be building towards a bad joke. <laughs> so here at the bottom left, we've got a picture. We've got, we've got a guy in a swing, and he's talking to a little girl. He's saying, fair is fair, Amanda. Now push me already. So clearly, his view of fairness is different to hers. You might say that fairness is the, is the sort of thing where you know it when you see it. Whereas transparency, you might say, <laughs> some people, <laughs> it's the sort of thing you know when you don't see it. Sorry, that was a bad joke. Really, of course, transparency is about looking underneath and trying to see something that's useful to give you an understanding about what's going on underneath, how something is really working. But I want to point out that there are many different types of transparency. Here are just some that I'm going to uh, mention briefly. The developer of a system really wants to understand how is their system overall working? Where will it work well? Where is it likely to work badly? And that enables them to improve the system or to debug the system. That's quite different to what a typical user of a system will want. Often they're interested in looking at one particular prediction or decision and understanding how that came about. So as an example, uh, we often hear about a credit approval system. So a bank might be deciding how to make a loan. And often you might, you might want to understand, well, how come I was turned down? Why? What, what led to that particular decision? Or even more so in criminal sentencing, where perhaps slightly scarily these systems are starting to be deployed, particularly in the US. There are even laws in the US being introduced which may require algorithm systems to be used in these contexts. And I don't know about you, but if, but if an algorithm told me that I needed to go to jail for five years, I'd really want to understand how did it come to that decision in the sense of did it follow proper legal process in coming to that decision? And I'd want to be able to challenge that decision if I didn't think it was done correctly. So that's a particular different kind of explanation. Another kind might be appropriate for an expert, perhaps a regulator, if maybe something goes wrong. So imagine an autonomous vehicle crashes. We may want to require recording something like the last 10 seconds of everything which the sensors record and all the decisions which are made, a bit like the black box on an aircraft, so we could step through everything that happened to try to help assign accountability and liability. So each of these different types of transparency motivates different measures, and they can be difficult to define precisely, never mind trying to supply each of these different, different sorts of things. Let me tell you briefly about two themes that are currently ongoing in the technical work to try to understand transparency of AI systems. 
The first theme is to restrict the type of model we learn by construction to be one which we're going to assume is easy to understand. And often people talk about decision trees. I'll come back to those in a second. So we'll, we'll talk specifically about those. So we restrict the class of model to something which is simple to understand. That will typically restrict the performance of that model. But sometimes it might still perform well enough that that's just fine. And the benefit is that we'll be able to understand more easily what it's doing. The second approach says, no, don't restrict your model at all. Do whatever you need to do to optimize for performance. And then afterwards, we're going to use other tools to try to understand what the first model was doing. OK, we'll, we'll look at both of these approaches. First, we're going to look at, the, at theme one. And I hope you're ready, because I'm going to ask you to, uh, to, to do a little bit of work. I hope it's going to be OK. Um, this is, these are examples from a tutorial that was given at an important machine learning conference called the International Conference on Machine Learning, ICML, which was held in Australia in 2017. It's a tutorial by Bean Kim and Finale Doshi Velas. And this is a very simple decision tree on the right. Let me talk you through how we should process this, and then I'm going to ask you to see if you can do one. So what happens is we've got this input data, which is OWL and ICML. And then we go through these decision nodes in this very simple decision tree. Okay, this is just a decision tree with three nodes, extremely simple. You get to the first decision point, and it's asking the question, is the animal an owl, given the data we've got above it? So is the animal an owl? Yes. So because it's, the answer is yes, we go to the left, and we go to the next question, which is, is the conference ICML? given the data we've got above. Given the data, yes, it is ICML. So we get yes again, we go to the left, and that means we should get the action of putting up our left hand. So could you all please put up your left hand? Brilliant. Thank you. But you see, there are other possible actions depending on where you end up at the bottom. And I'm going to ask you to give it a go on the next, on the next slide, and whenever you're ready, to do the action you think is right. Don't worry if it's, if it's tricky, just whenever you're ready. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. So this demonstrates a few things. First, it demonstrates that this is harder than you might think. This is about as simple a decision tree as you could possibly make. But still, it's not that easy. And don't worry, you, you, you're doing just as well as anyone else that I've ever given this talk to. Um, it's not easy. Also, we notice there's quite a lot of, uh, of uh, a social aspect of how people answer these questions. Once certain people start clapping, lots of people start clapping. And when certain people start stomping, lots of people start stomping. So it's, ve it's very interesting. Let me just talk you through this. Is the year less than 2015, given the data above? No, because it's 2017. So we go to the right. Is the continent Australia? Yes. So we go to the left. And so stomping was the right thing, which turned out to be the second thing. This side of the room is doing better. Well done, that side of the room. <laughs> Don't worry. I'm not going to ask you to do this one. <laughs> Or this one. <laughs> but the, the key points I want to make here are that even simple seeming model classes can actually quickly become hard to interpret. And further, actually, um, it only lets you do certain things. So as an example, if I were to say, given this tree structure, which are the features which are most important for making the decision here? Very hard to tell. So different sorts of interpretability can be important for different sorts of things. Now let's turn to the, to the second theme. This is where we build a complex model and then use different tools to explain it. 
Uh, and I'm going to show you within that theme a particular approach called saliency approaches. So what's happened here is that our first model, which we've optimized to, for performance, is learned to tell the difference between huskies, as shown on the left, and wolves, as shown on the right. So some of you may be familiar with these, I don't know, but you can see that there are slight differences. They look quite similar, but there are slight differences in coloring and things like that. The first model has been trained on a data set, and it's learned very accurately to tell the difference between huskies and wolves. Now, the second method, the saliency approach, allows us to look at a, at a particular classification, and then it will tell us which pixels of the input image were particularly important for the algorithm in coming to its conclusion. So here's a picture which was shown to the algorithm after being trained. It's actually a husky, but it classifies it as a wolf. And what I'm going to show you in a second is which parts of the picture it focused on to decide that it saw a wolf. Does anyone want to make a guess? The white bits. Any other ideas? Teeth? Eyes? Background, good, well, great. So if you are trying to focus on the actual qualities of the husky versus the wolf, you would look at various parts of the face, the ears. But as we've had, we had two great suggestions, look at the background or the white parts. I'm not sure which white parts you meant, but it turned out the important parts for this algorithm were the white parts in the background, that is the snow. So, so what's going on here? Well, it turns out in the training data, all the wolves had snow in the background. And that's what the algorithm focused on. Why not? Remember, when algorithms are trained on data, they just look for whatever best helps them to tell the difference. And you might think this is a bit trivial, but it's not really trivial, because what people typically would have done is they would have had a whole load of training data. They'd have separated out part of it. They'd have trained on the rest of it. They would have tested there, would have done really well. Then they'd have tested it on their held out data, would have done really well. And then they might feel confident that it's working just fine. They might go off to the Arctic on an expedition. And it would perform really badly, because it would classify everything as, as a wolf, because there's snow everywhere. So this method is helping to understand the model and the data. It is useful. Let me just give you one other quick example in theme two. These are sometimes called counterfactual explanations. So suppose you applied for a loan. The algorithm says, sorry, your loan was denied. You say, oh, no. Well, why? What could I have done differently? What could, what could I change in order to change the outcome? And the answer comes back. If your income was 8,000 pounds higher, your loan would be approved. Ah, OK. So that's a particular kind of explanation which could be useful in certain settings. The idea is to give a minimum possible perturbation of something which is in your control and return that information to the user. Sometimes that's going to be useful. The important point is there's no one universal approach to interpretability. There's no one type of explanation which will work well in every situation. And you keep that in mind, because many people say, we need transparency. We need transparency of algorithmic systems. But what exactly do they want can be hard to define. And let me give you another reason why sometimes it's a bit tricky. We can, we can differentiate between the audience of an explanation and the beneficiary who benefits from that explanation. So uh, I'm going to talk about, uh, this as an example, recommendations as made by Amazon. And uh, I didn't want to embarrass myself too much, so I've picked the class of biographies and memoirs that were recommended to me by Amazon. Here's some, some great examples. Uh, now, 
I don't know if any of you, I'm sure all of you have been recommended products by Amazon, and many of you may have bought that way, but I don't know if you've wondered why were you recommended those products. It turns out that until about a year or so ago, you could actually ask Amazon, you could say, why did you recommend this product to me? And it would give you an explanation which was quite satisfying. It would usually say something like, well, we've recommended book A to you because you've bought book B in the past and you liked book C. And that makes you similar to other people who also like book A. And that makes sense. But actually, when you think about it, Amazon are doing something, you can be pretty confident they're doing something more clever than that underneath the hood. They're using all the data they've got to try to recommend products to you. And when they give you an explanation, they're not telling you exactly what they've done. They're giving you some information, and what is it that they want to achieve? What they want you to do is to click on the product and buy it. So they're going to give you the information which makes you most comfortable to buy the product. I'm not saying they're giving you misinformation, but you can imagine there are many different possible explanations they might give you, all of which in some sense are true, but they're going to try and pick the one which is most likely to get you to buy the product. And this is, just to, to keep in mind, a figure from McKinsey says that over a third of all Amazon consumer purchases come from products which are recommended by algorithms. So this is a big part of, uh, of what goes on. And so there's an idea that we would want an explanation to be perhaps faithful in some sense. Something like the notion of the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But that's very difficult to define precisely. So again, this is an, an open problem. We've got, we've got a, an excited audience member. Which is good, which is good. Uh, an additional reason why perhaps we should be worried about uh, this possible idea of, of explanations as manipulation is revealed from, uh, this was a psychology study in the 70s. I don't know, if I, has, any, has anyone seen this before? Put your hand up if you've seen this before. My son has seen this before, that's brilliant. <laughs> and some other people, great, great. So, so this, this is a copy, the so-called copy machine study. And it's, it's, this was very interesting. This was back in the days when people used to make photocopies in libraries with real books. So what's happening is that people are standing in line at the photocopier in the library to make photocopies. And this, in the study, um, the researchers were going to try to push into the line and see if people let them in. So first, they would give no reason. They would say, please, could you let me in? And 60% of the time, people would let them into the line. Then they would give a real reason. They would say, please, could you let me in, because I'm in a real hurry. And when they did that, compliance went up, as makes sense. 94% of the time, they'd be let in. But here's what's weird and perhaps worrying. If a fake reason was given, that is, they gave a reason that had absolutely zero information content, they would say, please let me in, because I need to make a photocopy. <laughs> so everyone in this line needed to make a photocopy. That's why they're in the line. Still they were let in 93% of the time. So it seems as if there's something about human nature where if we're given an explanation for something, we're more likely to go along with it. So again, we need to be a bit cautious about asking for explanations because we could easily get given one by an algorithmic system which is just intended to make us feel comfortable. Again, we want, we want faithful explanations. And now let me raise a different kind of question. Let's consider what do people do? So uh, some of you may know Michael Gazzaniga. He's a, a great cognitive scientist. He's done lots of uh, famous experiments on people with split brains that enables you to try to figure out what's going on in our brains. And as he says, when we set out to explain our actions, 
They're all post hoc explanations using post hoc observations. We don't really have access to our non-conscious processing. Often we just say what's convenient. Indeed, what he says, the reality is listening to people's explanations is interesting, and in the case of politicians, can be entertaining, but often it's a waste of time. We need to be careful of the same thing with algorithms. When, when we give explanations as humans, we're doing it in a kind of social context to try to make ourselves look good or try to convince someone of something. And we need to watch out that algorithmic explanations don't do the same thing. So again, it's a call for faithfulness, but how do we define that carefully? It's, a, it's, it's an important open topic. This next topic is a little bit technical. Uh, don't worry if it doesn't all make sense to you. The important point I'm going to make is that there are some settings where transparency can be provably harmful to everyone involved. So again, when everyone calls for transparency, sometimes it's not a good thing. In general, I'm all for developing methods to help us be transparent, but sometimes it's not a good thing. And this is going to be a system where you can prove that it's not good. So this is, this is an, an example by uh, Frank Kelly of something called Bryce's paradox about network flow. We've got six cars. Imagine six cars driving in at the left to that node called S. And the cars need to decide which way they're going to go through this network before they eventually leave from T on the right. And what's shown in red. Sorry, we've got some equations. Don't be, don't be scared. These are showing the cost or delay uh, for every car that drives along that route. So this route that goes from S to U, it says the cost is 10x. That means as more cars go along there, if three cars go along there, the delay that they all experience is 10 times 3, which is 30, 30 units of delay. The more cars drive along that, the more delay, the more cost there is for everyone. So this is an example of what's called in economics an externality. An externality is a cost which you bear if I do something to benefit myself. And we have this in many real-world situations. We have many situations where people optimize for themselves, but and everyone together is doing that, and that doesn't necessarily lead to the best outcome overall because of these externalities. What's happening here is that um, if you were to look carefully, you see the system is symmetric. Everyone will keep moving around, changing their path until they can't improve their path anymore. We reach an equilibrium where no one can change by taking a different path, and we get three cars which go each way. Everyone ends up with a, with a delay of 83. Now I'm going to tell you is that all along, there was this additional road that goes from U to V, but no one knew about it. Now we're going to make this information transparently available to everybody. And typically in engineer things, wow, well, we've introduced additional capacity. This must be good for everyone. The, 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 the reason this is called a paradox is that so it turns out people start to reroute, and then other people see they could do better. If they rerouted, by the time you reach a new equilibrium, actually everyone is worse off. Complete transparency has made everybody worse off. And the intuition here, again, is that there are externalities. Everybody's selfishly optimizing what's good for them. And giving them more information is empowering, that, empowering them to do that more effectively. And that actually leads to a worst outcome for all of society. This is important to keep in mind, because sometimes we think about it being a good idea to have regulation. Sometimes, for example, in financial markets, where we, we say we want more things to be transparently available. And we just need to be careful, because sometimes this, this can lead to a less efficient system. So let me just recap here with some notes about transparency. There are many different types of transparency with different motivations. And we need better ways to measure those and to provide them. Those are big, important research challenges. Sometimes an explanation can be abused as a manipulation channel. And in some settings, more transparency can actually lead to less efficiency.
One last point. We should recognize that sometimes transparency is a means to an end, not a goal in itself. So again, let's go back to the example of autonomous vehicles. People sometimes say we shouldn't allow those on the roads if we don't know exactly how they're operating. How could we possibly do that? But I suggest that, that really there may be some more important things, such as how safe are those vehicles? After all, do, would we rather have 100,000 road deaths a year and know exactly how the cars are operating, or would we be happy with 10,000 deaths a year and not be exactly sure? It raises important questions about where do we want to prioritize. Sometimes we don't want to insist on complete transparency, provided we have sensible measures to try to check safety before we start to deploy systems. So, so far, I've talked about privacy, influence, reliability, and transparency. Next, I'll mention another critical, another critical concern, which is fairness in algorithmic decision-making. The AI we develop must treat all people fairly. We have to be very careful not to discriminate against any individual or minority subgroup. And this presents significant technical challenges, particularly if we're learning from historic data which reflects past human bias. This is now important in many commercial settings, such as selecting whom to interview when making a hiring decision or when making a loan. And of course, it's even more important in criminal justice. And if we're not careful, it's quite easy to get this wrong. So here's an example of a racist, what we might call a racist soap dispenser. Okay, Noel. There was a white Israel. person using the soap dispenser. The soap came out, no problem. Black person. Two black. Two black. Two black. Come again, Sasha. What they do? They get. They get. They get. He's now taking a white, a white tissue, and the white tissue is going to enable the soap to come out. Now, that might seem a silly example, but it, it shows, if you're not careful, these sort of things can easily happen. And it, it demonstrates what many people are calling for, that we should try to bring in a much more diverse set of people to build and deploy these systems to make sure that we take everyone's views into account, because we're building systems which are affecting all of our lives. Here's perhaps a, a, a more worrying, more serious example. Google clearly developing state-of-the-art technology. I don't know if, if any of you saw this. In, in 2015, they, they had this automatic image classification system, which they put out on the web. And it did a great job of classifying many things. But you'll see in the bottom middle, it was classifying some people with dark skin as gorillas. Obviously, that's very concerning and is, is a big problem. But after working on it for three years, <laughs> the best they could do was just to remove this gorilla class from its, from its algorithm. And this is important to keep in mind. Many people have the notion that all you have to do to fix this kind of problem is just to get better data. All people think is you just get more images of dark-skinned people, and that will sort, sort out the problem. But that doesn't always sort out the problem. There can just be issues, uh, basic aspects of physics, that can make it harder for systems to identify certain kinds of people. That's, it's a real issue. It's not always easily solvable, even by big companies. So it's very important that, we, that as we deploy these systems, we understand the limitations of those systems. Another important issue to keep in mind here um, is many people talk about bias in, bias out into an algorithm. If we, people think that if you train on data reflecting past human bias, um, then, we're, then maybe we're bound to reinforce that 
that passed by us? But the answer is no, actually. It's the starting point. So many people are working on ways to tweak algorithmic systems in order to enforce that they do behave in fair ways, even if the data is biased. And it's important to realize it's, it's often much easier to tweak an algorithmic system than it is to tweak people to be less biased. Let me start to wrap up. Let's think about human intelligence and artificial intelligence. Humans can certainly be opaque about our true reasoning, and often we're biased. We can certainly go wrong, but we've developed a good sense for millennia of living and evolving together for how we can go wrong. On the other hand, with AI systems, there is hope for more transparency and less bias. But these systems can be very brittle. It can be hard for us to know when and how they will go wrong. And that makes reliable, robust behavior very important for us to try to bake into our systems. AIs can perform very well in narrow tasks, but unlike humans, are very poor at understanding context and poor at common sense understanding. And because they're different, for a long time to come, there will be great opportunities to combine human intelligence with AI. Sometimes this is termed IA, intelligence augmentation. We want to draw on the best that both have to offer and combine them so as to be most effective. Let me skip over that. Let me, let me wrap up here. It's an exciting time for AI. Great increases in data and compute power together with improved algorithms yield great opportunities. Even for the current narrow techniques which we have, they can immediately be used to benefit society, e.g. in uh, medical diagnosis or optimizing transport, many other settings. But we're still very far from general AI or from common sense understanding. Don't be misled by what you might see in shows like Humans or Westworld. We're nowhere close to that. We must understand the strengths and limitations of current systems to deploy them appropriately to enhance human outcomes and to enable proper accountability. We're already seeing rapid increases in algorithmic systems in areas which directly impact our lives, hiring decisions, criminal justice, even ads. And for effective deployment, we need good measures of trustworthiness, including reliable performance, fairness, appropriate privacy and transparency, and control over influence. We're pursuing work on all these areas in Cambridge and at the Turing Institute. We should note that there are often trade-offs between these, these goals. While technical approaches can advance the frontier of what's possible, we need to talk together effectively about these issues with stakeholders, ethicists, policymakers, and the public. If we do that correctly, then through informed discussion, we can develop AI systems to benefit us all. And finally, as we reflect on how algorithms should behave, can give us fresh insight into our own morality. We've been thinking about our own values for millennia, but now ethics has become a pressing issue for AI systems, which are already de deployed in ways that affect millions of our lives. By thinking about how to improve AI systems and reflecting on how entities should behave, we can also sometimes see how to improve ourselves. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think mean, we, we have time for questions. So please put up your hands if you have questions. Are people going to come with mics? Um, 
in your um, summing up of the transparency um, part of your talk, you, you talked about um, perhaps it being better to have 10,000 deaths from uh, um, autonomous vehicles where you didn't know the reason rather than 100,000 where you absolutely did know the reason. Um, can you talk a bit more about that? Because I would, I would suggest that the, the, the national press would have a field day and, and uh, the whole country would be up in arms if, yeah. if uh, e even knowing that the risks were lower. Uh, well, if, if it's a great question, and obviously it's a very important question, an important question for us all to be thinking about. First, of course, any death is a tragedy, and we should try to avoid every single death. Secondly, which people are dying is, of course, going to be critically important to those close to the people who, who died. Many people, as, as you may know, are very interested in, in various versions of the trolley problem, where we get, we get very interested in which person exactly should be killed if a car is going to have to crash. These are very important questions. But also, let me remind you that we've actually got quite a history of dealing with new technologies in a pragmatic, practical way in order to save lives, even if we're not sure exactly how they're working. So for example, the way we approve drugs, we test drugs on people. And if they work well, we'll start to use them. I think that makes a lot of sense. It saves an awful lot of lives. We want to save lives. If we waited until we were 100% sure exactly how our drug was operating, we might Never know. We might never deploy any of those drugs. So I think there's room for healthy pragmatism. In, in first, you know, what does it mean to understand how something works? There's, it's, you know, one person's going to have a different notion to someone else. I think, I think we need to think together to decide what do we really need as criteria before we're ready to deploy systems in the wild. Does that make sense? Thank you. Thank you. Um, the most chilling part of your talk was in the first part when several times you said, not yet. Clearly, we're moving forward and moving forward in an exponential way. My question to you is what incentive is there to the people who hold our data, those smaller and smaller number of richer and richer and more powerful people, what incentive is there of theirs to want to um, reach an ethical understanding and are they not bigger than governments? And should we not be very frightened? It's a, a very important and topical issue. Uh, many of us may be following what's happening with Facebook or Google. Uh, clearly, they're in the news a lot with people being understandably very concerned about the amount of data which is, which is kept on them and how that data is used. Uh, we, should, we should be curious and potentially concerned. And it is the case that we are seeing greater concentrations being held in a small number of companies. Um, one thing which, well, let me mention two things. I don't have any magic solution, I'm afraid. But I mentioned two things that are going on. One is, clearly, these companies are very keen to maintain public trust. They're, they're always nervous that there could be the next new company to come on and blow them away. That may seem a little bit unlikely, but remember that each of those companies came on the scene very quickly and blew away competition very quickly. So uh, Facebook blew away MySpace, Google blew away AltaVista, both of which had 
uh, huge, uh, there were huge leaders in the field before they came along. So they're always very nervous about losing their positioning. They would much rather, or I suggest that they would much rather, and I suggest that many people at those companies are starting to realize this and talk this way. They realize that they, will, they want to keep the public happy because they've got such a dominant and happy position if they can keep the public happy that they don't really want to risk losing it. So there have been calls from those companies to say, we want more regulation. Now, sometimes people worry about whether that's just a, a slick way to actually try to slow things down and avoid it. But I suggest that, that if they are long-term smart, they actually do want the outsiders to help decide what should be done. It's difficult to know what should be done. I've pointed out issues. Suppose you want these algorithms to be more fair, to respect more privacy. OK, but what exactly do we want is not an easy question to answer. And to some extent, if we together, in some sense, I'll talk more about that in a second, can help to tell them what we want, they just have to implement it and prove they've implemented it, that actually makes their lives easier often. Because otherwise, whatever they implement can be criticized by many people. They'll never get it right from everyone's perspective. And one thing which I should mention, which is encouraging, is the UK has actually been quite thoughtful, I think, about this over the last few years. Despite having quite an obsession with a certain topic about Europe, um, the UK has had many select committee hearings on related topics. They have formed something called the Center for Data Ethics and Innovation to think about these topics, just formed last year. And they are starting to look at these kinds of questions. And they're starting to work with other governments around the world. So people are talking about this and thinking about it. And please get involved if you, if you would like to. Thank you. Can I ask you a question man-to-man? -man? Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty evident that in the United States in particular, IT is dominated by young males, and I'm sure they have a strong influence on what's happening. Do you think artificial intelligence would be better and have more emotional intelligence if it was developed by women? I, I, think, I, think, it's, I think it's a serious point, and absolutely we should be trying hard to attract more women and more underrepresented groups into the field. Um, the, the big tech companies and the researchers are heavily dominated by white males, um, increasingly also Chinese males. But we need to get more diverse people into, involved in the process, particularly women. Uh, these algorithmic systems are influencing all of us, and absolutely we, we, we need to do what we can. And I, would, I suggest that broadly as a field, there's increasing awareness of this, and people would, would really like to do this. So we, we certainly encourage more girls, more women. Please, could we have some more questions from girls and women? Uh, and we, 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 we do need to do something about that. Yes. Adrian, a question from a woman. Brilliant. Where are you? I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You've outlined very neatly at the present time what AI is capable of and what it's not capable of. How long do you think it's going to be before AI is capable of all the things you've currently outlined and would you trust it? That's a great question and a tricky question. Um, so people sometimes talk about artificial general intelligence and people mean different things by that. but. One definition that many people find attractive is an AI system which can do pretty much everything that a human can do, at least as well as a human. Clearly, there, there are questions around the details of that, but 
if we take that uh, as it sounds, there's a wide range of opinion on, on when that will happen or even if it's possible. So certainly there are people who think that humans can do things which we'll never be able to mimic. And there are other people who think that, well, actually, a human is just a biological system made up of atoms, and it's proof that it can be done. So we just need to figure out how to do it. In fact, one of the motivations many people have for studying artificial intelligence is to try to unpick and understand better our, our, own, our own selves, our own intelligence. It's one of the things which, which I find exciting. So there's a wide variety of opinion. I don't know if this will be helpful, but some people like to say, I'm not sure if this is strictly true, but going back to the 50s, uh, there's been over-exuberance in how quick it'll be to sort things out. There was a famous Dartmouth conference in 1956 where people suggested that over the summer they would get together a few researchers and they would sort out many of the major issues in understanding language and all sorts of things, which, which we certainly can't do yet. Then there's, there's an another, another kind of meme is that People have always said it's 30 years away. It's been a sort of constant 30 years away. But really, there's a very wide range of opinion. Some people will tell you that it's 20 or 30 years away. Some people will tell you that we'll never be there. What I would say is that even if it's hundreds or thousands of years away, if we get to that point, it will be a really major, major issue. It'll be a major point in history for our planet, you know, for the universe as we know it. Because as soon as we get close to human level, it's very likely that we'll rapidly go way past human level. Already, AI is much better than us at certain things. It's much better than us at a, a computation, much better than us at remembering facts, much better than us at interacting with the internet very quickly. So if it's as good as we are at everything, it's already much better at some things. And it will rapidly get more powerful, probably, because I, like I was saying before, there's more data and more comp compute available. So people say, well, once it reaches a, the level of a single human, within 20 years, it'll reach the level of the entire human race. It's a big deal, I think. And trying to think about how to prepare for it does make sense. We need to start working towards how can we be sure that these systems will be acting in our best interests. It's a big field. And um, there, there's, a, there's a whole set of work we can talk about if you're interested. One thing that I think is a good idea is by working on the things that I've talked about here to help make current systems more trustworthy, those will be important building blocks, important tool, tools to have as we move towards more advanced systems later. Thank you. Well, it will depend. I think we need to be able to trust the outcome. And therefore, we need to do a lot of work to make sure that that, that will be the case. Um, hi, uh, brilliant talk. Um, I've got a question which slightly follows on from your last point, which um, is really about AI taking away our own intelligence. And we saw with the translate that you can write in something into Google and suddenly you've got a perfect, tra or almost perfect translation. Um, and as somebody who speaks another language, it's a great joy to me to be able to speak another language. And the other day, I went on Google, and I did that. And I was slightly disgusted with myself, but I, I thought that, you know, I better get this absolutely spot on. And I can see that increasing in many different fields, not only language, but uh, even sat-nav, you know, the ability to kind of, you know, understand where you are, understand place. Maybe um, an inability to sort of be present, perhaps. And I have a major concern. Um, in the way that we go forward, which is that we are losing part of ourselves in this drive for even better systems. And I just wondered if you had a personal view towards that, um, 
which could shed a bit of light. It's a, it's a very important point. It's a valid concern. It's sometimes called technological enfeeblement. As we start to use technology to do something which we used to do ourselves, we become less good at doing that thing. This isn't a new thing. This has been happening historically for a long time. Let me just give some perspective. Um, Socrates was very nervous about writing as a system. So once people start writing things down, they'll, they'll no longer remember things themselves, and they'll lose the whole sense of culture, which, which is very important to him. Maybe he was right. I mean, most of us think that it was, turned out to be a good thing to have things written down, but it had pros and cons. There was, uh, I was recently came across some great stories when, uh, when books became popular uh, across the country. There are articles about how men and women were staying up at night reading books and not talking to each other anymore. And this was going to break down society, and it was awful. Maybe they were right. And of course, we have the same concerns again today with, with phones and, and other devices. Doesn't mean to say that it'll be OK. I actually think they're valid concerns. And what's a bit worrying is that it's very hard to predict. We just don't really know what effect these things will have on society. And yet, they're evolving very quickly. So whereas so far, typically, it seems to be the case that when we when we enfeeble ourselves at one thing because we allow a device to do that for us, we typically get better at something else that's higher value. And over time, we think generally that's a good thing. We can't be sure that's going to continue. And I do think it's important to try to monitor that and to, to see how things develop. Uh, we've got a flashing red light. Are we allowed to take one more question? <laughs> there we go. Let's have one more question. They might have turned off your speak loudly. Okay. I'm only the second woman, so I think it's important to have a thing. Yes. Someone's looking after the what, sorry? The, the effects. The effects on all people. You're absolutely right. A, a call for rep more representation by women and minority groups. You're exactly right. I completely agree with you. I'd, I'd add to that, actually. Um, completely agreeing with that. However, there are strong commercial pressures to make products which are good for women. Women are half of all the, all the buyers. So, so at least there are some commercial reasons that make people want to do that. But we do need more. We need more of that. On the other hand, there are, there are some people who, for whom there, are, there aren't commercial pressures to help them, the, the down and outs, the homeless. And we need to be thinking about people like that too. So absolutely, I agree with you, and, and more. I th thank you very much, everyone. Oh, thank you. Thank you. If people, if people have more questions, please find me afterwards, or feel free to, if you Google me, you'll be able to contact me. Thanks very much.